That's quite a phrase, you know, you just sung. From sin and evil, mighty though they seem. The congregation, you're dealing with sin and evil, are you not? Mighty though it seems. It doesn't just seem mighty. It seems almost overpowering sometimes, doesn't it? And you're just saying, though it seems. How can it be? Because of the next phrase. His arm almighty will his saints redeem. We have the almighty on our side and his arm in the end, of course, represents Christ himself sitting at his right hand. And then he can deal with sin and evil. And in the end, not sin and evil have the victory, but the one who sits at his right hand for our sakes, for your sake, to redeem, to renew, to restore. And that's what our text is about this morning as well. Genesis, the gospel as we find it in Genesis, chapter 4. And we're going to begin to read at verse 20 of chapter 3. Genesis 3.20. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. And the Lord God said, Behold, that man is become as one of us to know good and evil, and now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man. And he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. And Adam knew wife Eve his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And again she bare his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. In the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord, and Abel he also brought of the firstling of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and his offering, but unto Cain and his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. That is, sin will be like a leopard at the door, ready to pounce and to take your life from you. And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now art thou cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee. Her strength, a fugitive and a vagabond, shalt thou be in the earth. And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be hid And I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth, and it shall come to pass that everyone that findeth me shall slay me. And the Lord said unto him, Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. Now go to verse 25, verse 25. And Adam knew his wife, this is our text, 
Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son, and called his name Seth. For God, said she, hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. And to Seth, to him also there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord, that is, they began to have formal worship. This is the book of the generation of Adam. In the day that God created man in the likeness of God made he him. Male and female created he them, and blessed them, and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. And Adam lived an hundred and thirty years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. And the days of Adam after he had begotten Seth were eight hundred years and he begat sons and daughters. All the days that Adam lived were nine hundred and thirty years and he died. And Seth lived an hundred and five years and begat Enos. And Seth lived after he begat Enos eight hundred and seven years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Thus far the reading of the passage. Our text, as we have said, is verse 25 of chapter 4 of Genesis. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son and called his name Seth. For God said she hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. This little text tucked away here in Genesis 4 following the violence of Cain against his brother Abel and preceding the genealogies that go from Seth that eventually lead to Christ is a jewel of a text. It is suffused with the light of love. A demonstration and the display of the love of God for those whom he would call his own, and the love of a man for his wife. It is filled with gospel light and illumination. A case could be made that when it comes to the revelation of the gospel with clarity in the Old Testament, as that gospel has to do with Jehovah as the God of salvation and faithfulness, a case could be made that this text is of the third greatest significance. I say third because beyond any dispute, the text in the Old Testament that is the most wonderful revelation of the gospel, that is of the good news of Jehovah God as willing to be a and the God of salvation to a sinful people. Beyond any dispute, is the mother promise, Genesis 3, 15. The words of God directed to Satan through the serpent in the presence of Adam and Eve and telling Satan that I will put enmity between thee and the woman. And there's coming from this woman a seed who is going to be the dragon slayer. He's going to crush your head, Satan, and the heads of your little serpent children as well. I will see to it. That, remind you, remember, 
is on the heels of the rebellion of Adam and Eve who turned their backs on God and said, give me a choice between a piece of fruit and temporary pleasure and satisfaction and the friendship of God and I'll weigh them in the balance and I'll take the piece of fruit and satisfy my appetite. Know anything about that? Children of Eve? Know anything about that? But that was the sin. And God comes to that couple who found his friendship wanting in comparison to a piece of fruit with temporary satisfaction and said, these are yet my children and I will bring from them one who will give them the victory over you, Satan, and be my children indeed. The mother promise from which all the rest of the gospel scriptures in a certain sense flow. But I said our text is the third of significance a case can be made. That then might be the second. Well, if this were catechism class, I would put that question out to you and wait for somebody to raise their hand. And you have a choice, give, give an answer. Hazard a choice, as they say. But this is in catechism, I'm stated supply, so I'm required to give the answer. And I think when I give you the answer, you will not debate this with me. The text of second greatest gospel significance, that is revelation, clarity of revelation concerning how God works salvation is Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, I show you a mystery. That last phrase isn't in the text, but still, behold, I show you a mystery. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and thou shalt call his name Emmanuel. In other words, I, I am going to come and join myself in my son to your flesh and do for you what you cannot possibly do for yourself. I will take upon myself the punishment you are due, and bear it away, and grant to you life in the place of death. I will do that myself for you. Behold, I show you a mystery, God in the flesh, for our sakes, the fullness, beloved, the fullness of the gospel. And now, as I said, a case be made that the text we have before us this morning is of the third gospel significance when it comes to that revelation. A case can be made. You may have a different text. I'll suggest another one even in the course of the sermon. But a case be made, this is of third significance because it's the birth of Seth in the place of Abel. And Seth is the link, isn't he? He's the link in the chain that leads finally in the gene genealogies to Christ. The spiritual chain, the spiritual line that was never extinguished until the promised seed of the woman came at last. Without Seth, a chain is broken. And the seed of the woman is never born. Because God in his mercy and in his love for his own provides this Seth. You have the gospel that reaches to the New Testament, the birth of Jesus, Jehovah's salvation, Emmanuel, and to us in the end as well. Beloved, God so loved that he gave. God so loved that he gave to Eve, Seth the gift-giving God, 
That's what Eve herself acknowledges. She bears Seth and she says, For God hath appointed me another seed. The gift-giving God. This son, the revelation of a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God, and the depths of his love for his people. A revelation of God in his love, but as I said also, it sets forth the love of a man for his wife and the fruit of such love, where there is oneness of love and of faith. So we turn to this little jewel of a text into the theme, God's gift to Mother Eve. And Mother Eve, of course, represents the church. The ordinary birth of an extraordinary child that is of extraordinary significance, the fruit of love, anticipating the great seed, who, of course, is, in the end, the dragon slayer. God's Seth, God's gift to Mother Eve. From every human point of view, what our text sets forth, the birth of this child, Seth, there is nothing remarkable about the text. A man knows his wife, has a sexual relationship with her. She conceives. Nine months later, she brings forth, and they give him a name. How many times don't you read of that in the Holy Scriptures? And so-and-so knew his wife, and she conceived and bare him a son, now and again a daughter, but bore to him a child. How many billions of times hasn't that happened in the human race? A man has a relationship with a woman, and lo and behold, a child is produced, and they give him or her a name. Nothing out of the ordinary there, is there? And so here, Adam knows his wife. The Lord quickens the womb. She conceives. Nine months later, he's born. And they give him a name, Seth. So ordinary, so commonplace, so down to earth. A beloved, however, ordinary and commonplace, the birth of the Seth may appear. The birth of the Seth is anything but commonplace. The birth of the Seth is of extraordinary significance concerning the gospel and concerning the will of Jehovah God and concerning our salvation. The birth of this Seth is of extraordinary significance, I would say, from three different points of you. In the first place, what is born here is a human being. I don't care how commonplace the birth of human beings are, beloved. You do realize that the birth of a human being is the revelation of the splendor of the mind of the Creator. To know each other in love. And one strand of DNA wraps itself about the strand of another piece of DNA that you can't even see. And they perform the dance of life. And after four or five days, they reach what's called totopotency. And some of the, some of the cells decide to become bone, for producing a skeleton with limbs coming out just at the right place, shoulder height, you might say, and others from the bottom of the torso. And not only bones, but at some point, they stop and form a joint and then continue, and then more joints, so you can have a wrist with fingers of how many more 
joints, and all the joints just in the right place. And other cells decide they should become nerves because you need nerves to run down the bones, and others decide to become arteries and veins, and others decide to become blood running down the arteries and returning in the veins, and a, some muscles and some ligaments, and a little heart that begins to beat with just the right amount of chambers and the arteries joining it just at the right place. And the organs, you know, all arranged in such a way that they're in a kind of unified existence and secreting some of them just the right, just the right amount of chemical. Too much, one dies. Too little, one dies. And a skull and eyes and an aperture and a brain that can re receive the light of creation and develop in understanding and knowledge. A revelation, beloved, of the splendor of the mind of the creation, of the creator. Evolution, I'm going to say this from the pulpit, evolution, my foot, stuff and nonsense. It could not be by chance. just happens to be all this diversity just by chance? Really? I have a book in my library that's entitled A Brief History of About Just of Almost Everything. A Brief History of Just About of Almost Everything. By a man who looks at nature and the wonder of nature and then discovers of the laws that govern nature and of life itself on this little planet Earth in the midst of the starry splendor. When he comes finally to the part of biology and human life, he has made known already that he is a confirmed atheist. And there is no creator. This all happened over billions and billions of years. But when he comes to that section, biology, that deals with human life and describes the wonderment of it all, how this all develops in the womb and all the diversity that takes place to produce what you call a human being, a little boy, a little girl, daughter. He has a paragraph. And I'm going to summarize the paragraph in my words. What he essentially says in that paragraph, the concluding paragraph, is if I weren't resolved to remain an unbelieving atheist, I would be almost persuaded that a human child could only be produced as the result of the mind of a creator. Almost persuaded, but I'm resolved to be an atheist, so can't be the definition, you know, of a fool, but insightful for all that. And Mother Eve holds in her arms this little package of life that came as the result of two little strands of DNA performing the dance of life. And she looks at this little one and says, What hath God wrought? Parents, you know anything of that? When you held the little one in your arms, what hath God wrought from the two of us? The fruit of love to bring forth this, the revelation of the splendor of the mind of the creator. That was stuff in the first place. But there's more to it, isn't there? Because he is not simply a human being, a child, but this is spiritual seed. In this Seth resides God, the Holy Spirit. To this little one, Jehovah God has given spiritual life. What a wonder, beloved, not only of the splendor of the mind, what a wonder of the revelation of the splendor of grace, that one who has spiritual life should be given to Adam and Eve, who, as I said, have turned their backs on God, had rebelled against him, spit in his face. 
you gave us all this, but you didn't give us enough. We'll take everything for us and then decide for ourselves what we're going to do. That rebellion. And they died spiritually. But to this rebellious couple, redeemed by grace, he gives spiritual seed in whom dwells his holy spirit. What a wonder. Gives to us, beloved, such children as well, and children's children. The revelation of the splendor of the wonder of God's saving grace to the likes of us. So that we can speak to our children, and they have that created mind to, cor- to converse with us, but not only to converse with us, but to take what we teach them, and to believe what we teach them, and to have a like spiritual mind, a similar spiritual mind, that what we believe they believe, what we confess they confess, and there's a unity not only of blood, but the deeper unity of a spiritual life that is the life of Christ himself that joins us together in one body, as it were. That second place, that's this set, the seed of the woman, the continuation of the seed of the woman, and spiritual seed in whom dwells God's own Holy Spirit, which is to say God himself. And then there is this also as to his extraordinary significance when you consider his birth in the context of the history in which it occurred. And the context of the history, of course, is the murder of Abel by Cain. And the grief that comes as a result, but the seemingly cutting off of the spiritual seed, of the spiritual line. That's a striking thing. Beloved, this happens, of course, as Eve has, has, Eve has had Cain and thinks perhaps that he is from the Lord and the very promised seed, which of course he is not at this, at this time, and in the context that it seems that for the second time almost everything has been lost, the first time of course being the rebellion of Adam, of Adam and Eve against God and the taking of the forbidden fruit and saying we will take what we will and we will simply deny the authority of God and live as we well please and determine for ourselves what is good and what is evil and dismiss the Lord as a result against his authority, rebellion, and God drives them from the garden, we read, and shuts to them the tree of life so they can't eat its fruit, which fruit would have prevented them day by day from the aging process. And they're driven out into the the wide world with its, its assaults and its, 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 its threats of death and all the rest. That's the first time, of course, and then now here is the, the second time that you have Cain rising up against brother Abel and murdering him. Another, the next fruit of, of the result, they have had the mother promise and hope has revived that he will give spiritual seed But now it's apparent that the spiritual seed has been slain by the carnal seed, and the one they thought might be spiritual was not spiritual law, but was indeed the the seed of of the serpent. And it seems as though all hope is lost, and that the dragon, the dragon has had the final word, and the dragon has used one of the very children of Adam and Eve to destroy the spiritual seed, and with it perhaps the whole of the spiritual line this point we only read of two sons. They had daughters, evidently, and brothers had married sisters, and they had children and grandchildren, and cousins could marry cousins, because Cain will go on to say, they will see me and slay me, but only two sons, and the spiritual son is dead, and the other son reveals himself to be the seed of the, of the serpent, and it seems as though the dragon now has had the victory after all. And what you have, of course, by the slaying of Abel by Cain as the instrument of Satan, is a preview and an overview of the whole 
of Old Testament history as Satan, the dragon, seeks to prevent the coming of the seed of the woman, the champion of the seed of the woman, who, of course, would be his doom and would crush his head. And how many times in the Old Testament does he come perilously close, it seems, to cutting off the possibility of the coming of the seed of the woman and the great champion of his people, our champion and our savior and our, of our Lord. You have it here. Go to Egypt. The decree of Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. All the little, first, all the little boy, baby boys that would be drowned in the Nile. We will prevent in the, in the future any marriage between Israelites. And when all the males are gone, the women will simply be absorbed into the nation the, and the children they produce will be little Egyptians and we will be rid of any kind of Israel of God and so on. And then God intervenes, of course, with the plagues and delivers them across the Red Sea, by which baptism is signified. But think of Athaliah. Children here know about Athaliah, don't you? Who wants a grandmother like Athaliah? With a grandmother like that, you don't need grandmothers, I'll tell you that. She hears her, her son, her, her husband, she's of Ahab and Jezebel, of course. Her husband has already died. Her son is slain by Jehu when he also slays the king of Israel. He slays both kings. And grandmother Athaliah hears that and turns about on her grandsons to slay them so she'll be the only one who has the power. But God is there by the wife of Jehoiada, the, the high priest, and she steals little Joash away and the royal line is preserved. And the dragon's jaws snap shut. But they have missed. God has delivered and you can go on to Babylon, and it seems as though the royal line might be cut off, but it is, pre it is preserved. And now, it came to pass in the days of Caesar Augustus, and there was a certain Edomite on the throne, wasn't there, in Jerusalem, whose name was Herod. And Magi came from the east and said, we saw his star, where is his birth? Oh, return to me, return to me, because I want to worship him too. And being warned in a dream, Joseph takes the little one, flees into Egypt, and Herod sends his swordsmen down to Bethlehem, and they slay all the little boys, two years and younger. But the seed of the woman has escaped, and it's as though the jaws of the dragon snap shut, but they have just missed again. Deep is the wisdom of God in preserving the line and the seed of the woman himself and all is said and done. And that, beloved, is in our text as well. That's what the significance of the birth of Seth is. Satan thinks he has destroyed that spiritual seed, Abel, who was plainly spiritual by, his, by the, very, the very appearance of his sacrifice. But God takes a hand. And Adam knows his wife. And God plants that seed in the womb of Eve. And from that planting of the seed comes this Seth, whose name means replacement, which is very close to the word substitute. God is replacing Abel with Seth, pointing ahead to another substitute. There will be a substitute for all God's children, and by his substitution and replacing us on the cross, will work our salvation when all is said and done and not only die for us, but be the one who will give to us life, spiritual life, in our generations. God be thanked. That's the gospel here, beloved. That's the revelation of the God who makes promises and then keeps promises, even when it may look bleak and the evil, it seems, has overwhelmed and has had the victory. It may appear that way, but not with God in the picture and his promises. In the end, beloved, life and truth and love that brings forth life prevails. That's the gospel, and that gospel is demonstrated in such a beautiful way in what love produces. Love, the love wedded to faith, produces life. Adam's love, wedded to his faith, as he joins with Eve, produces life. And from that life comes, in the end, salvation 
itself. And that's what we see in this text, as I have said, this jewel of a text, this revelation of the love of God. It's in the context, you see, against the background, you see, the illumination of the light. Now, we've read some of the context, but the historical context that illuminates this love is found in the text itself. Notice, Adam knew his wife again. She bore him a son. And then she says, For God hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel whom Cain slew. Notice that. Instead of Abel whom Cain slew. You talk about a grief that is almost bottomless. And you talk about the death of a child. Be that child dead as he or she comes from the womb, two weeks after birth, two years after birth, 12 years after birth, 22 years after birth. It is a grief, beloved, of an almost bottomless sort. A grief which for a mother is never forgotten, not till the day they die. I know that as a pastor, I don't know how many times I have walked into a new congregation, into the room of a widow of a new congregation, and her livelihood has pretty much shrunk to one room in a rest home, say, and there's a bed, and there's a recliner, and there's a desk, and a table, and a lamp, and some books on the, on the, on the table, and some pictures on the shelves. And walking up to the pictures and seeing her family as it's displayed there, saying to her, oh, Mrs. So-and-so, you had four children. Oh, no, Reverend, I had five. One was stillborn. His name was Robbie. Or two weeks after he was born, polio. This is sometimes 60, 70 years ago. Polio, tuberculosis, you name it. 12, 22. Two months ago was his birthday. He would have been 57 years old. Here's the date. Here's how old he would have been. In a month is the date of her death. If it's, a, if it's a daughter, and she would have been so-and-so. They haven't forgotten beloved. The love of a mother for children is as deep as life itself. Children, young people, never forget that. That's Eve. She's the one who has to come with Adam and cradle the corpse of her son, Abel, in her arms and carry the body of that son to a grave to be buried, and slain by another of her sons, the brother of this Abel. She has to deal with that grief. But add to that grief this. This death is in creation, and this murder occurred because of my choice, my sin, my guilt, And God has brought that to mind again. Has he forgotten to be kind? Is this a word of his judgment to bring my sins to remembrance? One one is reminded, you know, of the widow of Zarephath, whose house Elijah visited, and her little seven-year-old dies. And she says, this is why you visited my house, Elijah, to bring my paganism, past paganism, to remembrance? And Elijah is stunned. The Lord had not told him this would occur. And he goes up to the loft with the body of that little one and prays and breathes upon it and lays upon it and the little boy is revived, resurrected and placed back in the arms of the mother again. But that's what you see, what you see that Eve is dealing with. I am to blame. I am to fault. I brought this 
to pass. And this is the punishment of God upon me due to my sin. What would you have said to that mother if you were her pastor? I don't know exactly what I would have said. You would have said, well, you would have reminded her of the mother promise. And I suppose that's true. But I think that she would have said, those are words, wonderful promise. But here's the corpse. This is what we must bury. This is the reality. It seems to me that the promise is in tatters and the whole of the reality has been ripped to shreds because all I am left with is death and the death of my son. And now, beloved, to go to the text. And she holds in her arms Seth, the replacement the substitute, the blessing of God upon Adam's love for her. And as she holds that little one in her arms, Mother Eve says, this is not the frown of God, the anger of God. This is the revelation of the smile of God and the love of God. He has not forgotten to be kind. He has revived my womb again to produce, we pray, we pray, the seed of the woman that will lead finally to the great champion that will overcome the dragon and undo what I brought upon creation and the human race. That's her hope. And that's, beloved, their joy in the birth of this Seth. Beloved, to have, of course, is gospel then when all is said and done. One is reminded, you know, by the birth of this of this Seth, of what you find in what could be the third most important gospel word replacing the text that we have this morning. I said a case can be made, but a case can be made also for a text such as Isaiah 40. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, Seth, your God. And I find so striking about that passage, beloved, is what comes at the heart of that passage. And the heart of Isaiah 40 is verse 11. And the promise of verse 11 is the promise of a shepherd. And he shall lead his flock like a shepherd. This is going to be the seed of the woman. This is going to be the champion. This is going to be your Lord and Savior. He shall have a shepherd's heart. He shall lead the flock like a shepherd and carry the lambs in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. His heart, beloved, his heart, having to do with the mothers of Israel and what he gives to the mothers of Israel and the burdens they must bear and the labors that they must do in his name and telling the mothers of Israel, and you, I never forget, even though I may put burdens on you, in the end, I will bless your labors with salvation itself to you and those whom you bring forth God so will. If you can't begin to hear the love, the hallelujah chorus break through when she holds up in her arms, you're tone deaf. I'm reminded of the widow of, Zareph, of, of, of Syrophoenicia, that woman of the Syrophoenician, a Gentile, who says to Christ, as her little daughter lies dying, have mercy on whom? Have mercy on me. So closely does a mother identify herself with her child. Have mercy on me. And the plea of that Gentile woman by her faith overpowers Christ Jesus. And he says, according to your faith, so be it. She's healed. She's made whole. She also is one of mine. The revelation, beloved, of the love of God in the one whom he sent, Christ Jesus, who is our Lord. But there's also this the revelation of the love of a man for his wife. Don't lose sight of that. The text says that Adam knew his wife again. And that doesn't simply mean that he knows her with a sexual relationship and the result is a child. 
what the text is telling us is that they both stood by that grave, you know, and had to deal with the death of a son. And Adam knows his wife according to her need. He knows that going through her mind and maybe from her lips is this, I am to blame. I brought this to pass. This is the judgment of God upon the world creation and our family because of my choice, my sin, my guilt. And he doesn't turn to her and say, you know what, woman, you're right. You're to blame. I fault you. If you hadn't presented me with that fruit, I would never have eaten it. I don't know why the Lord ever gave you to me. On you lies the whole blame of the curse of creation and this whole sorrow. He didn't say that, did he? He turned to her in his love and he embraced her and said, you made a choice and I made a choice and I am as much to blame as you. I forgive you for what you brought. My love, forgive me as well. That humility, beloved, that kind of love. Where would we be in our marriages without the willingness to forgive one another as we live as sinner saints together? A willingness and a readiness to forgive another who seeks that forgiveness and who expresses a desire to walk in the ways of God again. Forbearing one another in love. That's what love is. How many times in scripture you don't simply read love? Forbearing one another in love. Why is that? Because we're sinners living with sinners and we better do some forbearing as Jehovah God has dealt with us in a forbearing love. Is it not so? And then there's the reflection, you see, of Christ with the church and the ordinance of marriage and the power of the ordinance of marriage and why Christ, the devil is seeking to unravel the ordinance of marriage and that kind of love, self-denying, self-deferring, self-giving love. Unravel that and I can destroy the home and with it the spiritual strength of the seed of the woman. But from this marriage, beloved, these two who yet love each other in a forbearing way comes Seth. And because of Seth, there is the dragon slayer. And because of the dragon slayer, beloved, we have the gospel. This Seth is, as I have stated in the third point, is the harbinger of the great seed. Harbinger, of course, means not only precedes another, but foreshadows and foretells something about the other, and the other who will come will even be greater than what you see. It's like a crocus, you know, poking through the, the soil in, in the spring of the, of the year, and you saw, say, okay, here's some crocuses, but in time there's going to be, because the springtime is coming, there's going to be that which blooms and buds in a veritable garden of, of color and of, of life, a harbinger. And so is Seth, you see, the harbinger of the one to come. And he must be the harbinger because he can't possibly be the great seed. What was the last thing we read in Genesis chapter 5? And he died. Here is this child of extraordinary significance born. He brings forth a son, Enos, and he dies. How can he contend with the dragon? He can't even contend with death. Death overwhelmed and overtook him. He may have lived a long time, but he still died. And he couldn't overcome death because he couldn't overcome the cause of death, which has to do with sin and the guilt of sin. We need blood whose blood speaks of greater things than that of Abel. That's Hebrews, you know. Abel's blood had a certain voice. The blood of thy brother cries to me from the ground for what? For vengeance. Vengeance and wrath. But there must be another blood. It doesn't simply speak of vengeance and wrath, but speaks of atonement and of covering and of a sentence served. And like water on the ground is the right to life, spiritual life, the harbinger, beloved, of that one who is to come, whose blood will speak of greater things than of Abel's, and will be able to do greater things than Seth was able, ever able to produce. In the end, Mary's, Firstborn, 
Emmanuel, God with us. And she holds him in her arms. You know the passage in Luke chapter 2. She wraps him in swaddling clothes and lays him in a manger. Ever read of anything so commonplace, so ordinary, so down to earth? This little son that Joseph says must be named Jesus. There's nothing extraordinary about him, it appears, does it? There doesn't appear to be anything extraordinary about our own children, just commonplace and ordinary children. And yet in this one who's Mary's firstborn, not Joseph's, Mary's firstborn and God's own son, there is something of extraordinary significance and power because this is the son of God in our flesh. And he it is, beloved, who will lay down his life, arise on the third day, ascend up into heaven with the rod of iron, and he will crush the head of the serpent, of the dragon, and of the seed of the dragon, and use our children, beloved, our children in the church to do so as well. That's the one to whom the Seth points, and that's the one who is the substitute and the true Seth, the replacement. And now don't you see, with his birth, with his resurrection, with his ascension, we do have something to bring to a grieving mother and a grieving father in the death of a child and the hope of the life that is hereafter, which death will never touch, and all the tears and sighing will be wiped away. I said extraordinary. That's the word I've been using, extraordinary. The birth of this child, from a certain point of view, of extraordinary significance. I would love to know what's the greatest thing that is extraordinary? That which is most extraordinary is what God, in his love for us, has brought forth, and what God in his love continues to bring forth from us to the glory of his name and the filling of the body of Christ himself. How excellent is his name, the splendor of his mind, of his will, and of his grace. Amen. For thy word we give thee thanks for the seed of the woman, the seed of the woman who may live in our seed as well, but Christ Jesus, Lord and Savior, for him we give thanks as the revelation of thy love, thou gift-giving God. Teach us in gratitude to seek to reflect our Lord in our own marriages in the ways of love and faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.